Well, if you, as you're turning to Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, I, I want to reiterate something someone said before I came up here, but we are in a great book. Uh, Hebrews is, is uh, a phenomenal book for not just our growth, but to challenge us, to encourage us, to sharpen us, to uh, challenge us to hold fast to our faith in a ever-increasing chaotic culture, which the Hebrews are, were all too familiar with. So I just want to reiterate that, that Hebrews has been a, a real joy. I, I hope that you have enjoyed studying it, if not listening uh, here on Sunday. Well, if one thing is true, we all long to grow up. We all long to, to mature, uh, some maybe more than others, if you're like me. Um, but we all long to mature. Maturation is something that we all desire. In fact, it reminds me of, of something that just happened the other day with my two oldest sons, Elijah and Maddox. Elijah and Maddox and I, we go for walks in our neighborhood, and they like to play on this one area. And lo and behold, two 10-year-olds named Connor and Mason, which is the most 10-year-old name you could ever think of, sorry if your name is Connor or Mason, um, come strolling in on scooters, and they are whipping these things around, they're doing jumps, they're doing all these sort of tricks. And I look over to my son's eyes and he is just almost dumbfounded. Just, he is, his eyes and his world just got rocked to the brave new world of scooters, which he will wait a long time to have. But he looked and his eyes were just glued. There, Connor is, you know, jumping up maybe <laughs> eight inches into the air, but it is eight inches and it is amazing. And they are going around, whipping them around, and, and you could just tell Eli and Maddox wanted to be just like them. They want to grow up. Growth physically and spiritually is only natural. Something that is alive will always be growing. Some of you had houses where your parents measured your heights on a wall or a door frame. Why did we do this? We, you, you probably did this or your parents did this to encourage you to visibly show Look, you're growing. Look, maybe you grew, grew an inch. Maybe it had been a while and you grew eight inches. Nevertheless, it was to encourage you, you're growing. Growth is something that we get excited about. It's something that we desire. That is true both physically and spiritually. But my question to you is, but what if you were a child and you can't, stood up to a doorframe and you weren't growing, but you were shrinking? This is in some ways ridiculous but the author is making an indictment on this church, on the Hebrews. He's, he's warning them that actually the opposite of what should be happening is actually happening. That you're not growing. There's shrinking happening. There is a regression. There is, there is some place that they should be that they simply aren't. It's interesting that in Hebrews, he's made this long um, argument, this this kind of treatise of holding fast to your faith and why you should hold fast to your faith. And it would seem he comes to this part in, in the book and he kind of goes to a detour and he offers them a warning. He offers them a rebuke that you should actually be teachers, but you need me to teach you again. What's going on here? The author is giving a warning. As a pastor that I enjoy reading says, he says, there's no neutral gear in the Christian life there's simply no static position. We're either progressing or we're regressing. I want to look at Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. I believe God has something very fitting and challenging for all of us as we long to grow and mature. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word in Hebrews 5, 
11 through 14. I'll read aloud. Um, I'll say, this is, the, this is the word of the Lord. You will respond with thanks be to God. I'll pray and then you may have a seat. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. A warning against apostasy. About this we have much to say and is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a challenge. We thank you for Hebrews, as I was reminded that it is such a, a, a great book, as my friend said. God, you know that and are sovereign over all and that there's no one here by accident. God, you are creator, sovereign. So therefore, God, Holy Spirit, would you apply this word to whom it needs to be applied to, which is all of us. Would you comfort those who are uncomfortable? And God, for those who have, of us who are too comfortable in our Christian walk, whether that be thinking that we are Christians, we are simply not, or being um, idle in our Christian life, God, would you challenge us? God, I pray for those who are sick, mourning, would you comfort them? God, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? And God, would you allow the word to be heard and to be meditated on and to be enjoyed and for us to get a greater glimpse of the gospel and of Jesus as more beautiful than the time when we stepped in here. God, we love you. Help us to love you more, not just in thought, but in deed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Like I mentioned before, you will recall that Hebrews is, is making the argument that Jesus is superior than to anything, any priest, anything you could give your life to, uh, any false idol, whatever it may be. The, really, the, the, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is trying to encourage us and to get us to see that Jesus is superior to anything in this world. And he does this by many different ways of encouraging. He, we looked at last week, Jesse talked about that he is of the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get to actually in Hebrews 7 of what does that mean. And then the week before, we looked at how Jesus is actually sympathetic with us, that he sympathizes with our temptations, with our sin, with our inability um, to get our lives together. He has not that he understands what that is like, but that he sympathizes with us and by the cross and by the gospel that we can be confident to draw near. He encourages us to hold fast to our faith. Another way you could look at Hebrews is one great sermon written to encourage us to hold fast to our faith. And if you'll notice, if you have a Bible, especially if you have an ESV Bible, but I think the NIV or other translations have subheadings, but in this subheading, it would be a warning against apostasy. And he, if you'll notice, I'll recall that he has warned against this, not just here, but in, in prior chapters, such as 2 verse 1, pay close attention to the message you've heard lest you drift away. 3 verse 8, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. 3 12, take care lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. 
4.1, fear lest you fail to enter God's rest. 4.11, be diligent to enter God's rest lest you fail, lest you fall by disobedience. Or 4.14, hold fast to your confession. He's warning against apostasy. But what is apostasy? What apostasy is not is a non-Christian. Apostasy is not just a non-Christian. There are many people, maybe some of you who are in here who would not be Christians or would not identify as Christians, but we also know that there are other religions. There are Muslims and Buddhists and many religions of the world. Those aren't apostates. What apostates are also not are struggling Christians. Every Christian struggles. Um, that should be an encouragement to us. What apostates are not are struggling Christians. All of us at one time in our, in our life, I would argue, will have seasons of struggle where our walks with God will be tried, they will be tested. Apostates are not struggling Christians. All of us struggle. And actually, the fact that the, the reaction to say, I am struggling, I need help, to both God and to a brother or sister in Christ is actually an evidence of the opposite of apostasy. It's actually the evidence of maturity. To say, God, I need help. I, I don't desire you the way I should. I don't desire your word. That's actually an evidence of maturity. What apostasy is, is people who at once identified with the faith, who were in the church, who maybe had great gifts, whether that be uh, oratory ability, whether that be an understanding of the Bible, but who at one time were in the church, but now have walked away. At one time they were in the church, they had what appeared to be experienced fellowship with you and most importantly with God, but yet at one point say, this is not for me. I cannot do this. Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, gives an indictment of warning against even what would be the appearance of maybe even religious fervor. In Matthew 7, 22, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Apostasy does not come because someone lost their salvation. We know that that's not true. We know that once God saves someone, like Philippians 1.6, he says he will see it to completion. What apostasy simply means is that they were never a Christian to begin with. And the author is making a direct correlation between a dullness of hearing and apostasy. Now, there may be multiple reasons why someone walks away from the faith, but a sign that something is off, where it starts often, is a dullness of hearing. Those words more accurately, what does he mean? If you look at verse, verse 11 and 12, he says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That word, it, it, it more translates uh, better, you have become lazy listeners. Lazy listeners. Now keep in mind what dullness of hearing is, it's not primarily a physical problem. It's not a physical problem. It's a sin problem. And more importantly, I would argue that it is a worship problem. It is not a physical problem. It is a worship problem. It's a sin problem. Deaf people can be the sharpest hearers and blind people can be the sharpest seers. It's not physical. Dullness of hearing is the failure, failure to make use of the word heard to nurture faith and bear the fruit of obedience. I'll say that again. It's the failure to make use of the word heard to nurture our faith and bear the fruit of the Spirit, to, of obedience, of Christ-likeness. 
what this can often feel like or, or, or appear like is the promises come into the ear, but there's no passion for them. There's no lover's embrace. There's no cherishing. There's no treasuring. There's no saying, God, I delight in your word like a deer pants for water. So my thir- soul thirsts for God, like Psalm 42 says. Or if you look at Psalm 119, which is the longest Psalm in the Psalms and has 176 verses, it is all about loving, cherishing, and submitting to God's law. Friends, something, something is off in our faith, typically what the first sign is that there is just a, a dullness. There is an apathy. It's kind of like this. It, it, most of you, I would say, probably majority of you have been on an airplane. And typically, in my experience of getting on an airplane, you walk in, you, you kind of, there's kind of like a, a, a latent anxiety. You're trying to find your seat. Are they sitting in my seat? Am I sitting in their seat? You know, you're kind of wrestling around. Okay, I got my seat. And then you sit down and you're looking for your phone or you're looking for your iPad. You're looking for something to buy the time and, or you're talking to someone that you flew with. And then all of a sudden what happens is, is something that everyone hears, but no one is really hearing. And the pilot gets on and he says something to the effect of, we're cruising at about 30,000 feet. We're going to be Flying at 30,000 feet, we are about three minutes ahead of our arrival time. We're blue skies, sunny times, you know, whatever he says. And, and then you're, you're like, okay, you know. And then what happens is the flight attendant will get up and you'll, hear, you'll, you'll see the, the rescue video that comes on. In the event of a crash, locate your yellow cups that will fall down, right? As if when you're flying 200 miles an hour going into the Atlantic Ocean, you're going to say, Someone told me about something. Let me pick those cups. So you're flying down, right? And, and what happens is the flight attendant will get a seatbelt, like a fake seatbelt. She'll come up and she'll say, look right here. She'll do all this. You don't care. No, no one is really caring. You get it. You understand it. So you, you're hearing this, but you're not hearing it. You're hearing it, but you're not hearing it. And this can often be, sadly, how some can view the Bible. You're hearing it, but you're not hearing it. I, often attitudes can often sound like this or, or resemble this. I've heard all this stuff. I, I know this stuff. I've, I know the Bible. I get it. I understand Jesus came. He died. I, I get that. But there's really no desire for God's word. What this conveys is a spiritual state that is in danger of becoming hard as a rock, a spiritual regression, a dullness of hearing. Even Jesus, when, when speaking, Jesus, when he spoke, there were many times where people did not understand what he was saying. Some because he intended that way and some because of the hardness of their own heart. In John eight forty three, he says, why do you not understand what I say? Is, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. There is a reality that the Bible oftentimes can challenge us in ways that we simply do not want to be challenged. It crosses us in ways that we do not want. It cuts our will, our rights. It it calls us to repentance. It calls us to holiness, which at the grand scheme of things is a very difficult challenge. It's actually an impossible challenge outside of the grace and regeneration from the Holy Spirit in the gospel. But we need the Bible We need the Bible not just to grow in our Christian walk, but simply to love Jesus and to continue 
in our faith. D.L. Moody once said, the Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. This is why the author takes time to say in a very brief couple verses, I'm very concerned about your spiritual state. I'm concerned what is going on. You should be teaching somebody, but I'm needing to reteach you the basic oracles of God, it says, which is really a translation that can be just understood, the ABCs of the Christian life. So we see he diagnoses a problem and then he moves on to what maturity looks like. And I'm gonna argue that communion with God leads to maturity. Let's move on to verses 13 and 14. The beauty in our walks is that God cares deeply about the maturation process in the Christian life. Solid food, he says, at 13, excuse me, in 14, he says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature. Milk is for the immature. That there is a, a progression in our walks with God where we are be able to understand and to desire, where we not only just grow in a desire to study God's word, but we are starting to understand theological um, themes. We're starting to being able to understand what the author is talking about. There's an exposure to the Bible. You know, in Hebrews, one of the reasons why Hebrews is such a great book is because there is a lot of going back, of referencing the Old Testament. From Psalm 110, which Chad talked about about three weeks ago, to even interfacing with Exodus, about a true Exodus where he led the Israelites out of Egypt, which we just studied. There's an ability to understand these things. Where they should have been growing and teaching, they're needing the milk of the word and need the ABCs explained to them again. There is nothing wrong with an infant feeding on a diet of milk. It would be insane to bring my not yet born son in about six to eight months, bring him to Ruth's Chris and say, enjoy, partner. <laughs> no, that, that, is, that is inappropriate. That would not be loving. Why? Because he doesn't have teeth and he doesn't have the digestive tract to, un, to, to enjoy Ruth's Chris, right? Let me tell you another story about Ruth's Chris, unrelated. One of the first dates I took my wife on when we were dating was to Ruth's Chris. She ordered a salad. On some level, that is sin. On some, on some level, it's not sin. But, but how do you order a salad at Ruth's Chris? It helped the budget out, but it was a, a real travesty. Um, no, it would be unloving to bring my, my son, which is about to be born in two weeks there, because he, he cannot digest it. But I think of my son, Shepard, who takes a bottle every night. He needs a bottle of milk. He's two, two years old. We probably need to, we do need to wean him off. Um, I just exposed our lack of parenting. Um, you know, he drinks a, a, a bottle of milk and that's fine. But if in, at 15 years old, he still needs a bottle of milk, I will be concerned. And I will not be, I will not be concerned because I am unloving, hard, cruel taskmaster. I will be concerned because I care deeply about Shepherd, because I love him, because I want to hit, to hit him to enjoy adult food, which is able to nourish his body much more and better than milk. God has expectations on our growth and maturation, not because he's a hard taskmaster, but for the same reason he calls us to obey, because it's for our good, because he, he loves us, because he wants us to mature 
I care about Shep's maturity because I love him. God cares about our maturity, not just in the Christian life and in terms of doctrine because he's a hard taskmaster, but because he loves us. But what is solid food? Let's, let's, get, let's clarify this. What is solid food? When it, if you look at, um, in verse 13, it says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Many commentators say that's just basic biblical understanding, being able to connect and understand and grow in our knowledge of, of the Bible. Some, some commentators would argue this is orthodoxy, right? That understanding the depth and breadth of God's word from theology to doctrines to biblical themes to motifs to all of theology. Are we growing in theology? Are we growing in our orthodoxy? Some people would say this is pertaining to orthodoxy. Some would say, no, this is orthopraxy. What you do, the good works. We see that in James, faith is dead if there are no works. That faith, good works are not, do not produce our faith. They are an index of our faith. Ephesians 2.10 makes this very clear that God has saved us and called us to walk into good works, which he actually has prepared beforehand. That's, a, that's good news. So which one is it? Is it orthodoxy? Is it orthopraxy? You could probably guess where I'm going. It's both. It's both orthodoxy that nourishes and supports our orthopraxy. But as the adage goes, why is it just easier said than done? Why is maturity often so difficult? I'm 32 years old. I've been a Christian for 12 years. And I am constantly disappointed frankly, and where I am in my Christian life. I guess I would say I wish I thought I would be somewhere else at the time of 32. I believe Christian maturity, spiritual maturity is often hard. It requires effort. It is unseen. It necessitates a self-denial and it requires humility. Maturing in life and in Christ requires effort. It requires listening. Maturity in Christian life, we understand that we don't save ourselves by simply reading the Bible and wanting to grow in our knowledge of the Christian faith. God saves us, and then that is a result. But God gives growth, but we also have a part to play in that. Christian growth, Christian maturity is not osmosis. It just does not just happen by me sitting down. As one author, Kent Hughes, says, there's something called some holy sweat. He says that in a book called the, the... disciplines of a godly man, that there is an effort, there is a desire, but where that desire comes from is love, that I love Jesus, I want to know him, and I want to be like him, but it still requires effort. To listen to someone means that we actually stop speaking and we listen, and this is a challenge in a world that really does the opposite, calls us and often reinforces that we should be quick to anger and slow to listen and slow to speak. Maturity takes time. If you look at yourself every week and say, well, am I growing? We might be disappointed. But in a year or two, can we look back and say, am I growing? And the way that we can do this is, is one, a good way is also to look, am I growing in my love for this? Am I growing in my love for God's word? Another way is, am I displaying the fruit of the spirit? Some questions that I ask myself in my wife as I was studying this is, am I becoming a more forgiving person? Am I more patient? Am I less defensive? Am I quicker to humble myself before people? Do I confess lying and other sins quicker than I used to? Am I growing in gentleness? Am I a more joyful person in the Lord? These are also indicators of maturity. 
One thing that we must notice to reinforce that maturity just does not happen by sitting down and doing nothing. It says, notice that the author makes a correlation between maturity and their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. What does it mean to train with constant practice? It means spending time in our Bibles, being in fellowship with one another, being a part of a local church, whether this is your local church or you're a part of another local church somewhere else, being a part of one, covenanting together. It means uh, participating in the Lord's sacraments, spending time in personal prayer that is unseen, praying alone, unseen with the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.14 encourages, encourages us in our knowledge of scripture and being submitting ourselves to scripture. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. There's that word training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I wanna make a very, uh, uh, a very helpful distinction about what maturity is not. Something very important to understand is maturity is not exclusively knowledge about God. And that's a very crucial understanding. I'll say it again. Maturity is not exclusively knowledge about God. We don't grow by, here's the key word, only accumulating facts of higher understanding of theology. Does knowledge matter in our growth? Absolutely. Christians, meaning that they're displaying more of the fruit of the Spirit, will naturally grow in their understanding of doctrine. Now, some will desire that more than others, and some will grow and have a gift of understanding more than others, but all will have a desire of growing and wanting to know God more. You know, as I dated my wife, and I, still to this day, I love getting time with her because I'm finding out more and more and more of who she is. I'm getting to know her, right? I'll never fully know Jordan. Jo- oh, um, women are complex, right? Um, getting to know her, but I love her. Why do I want to do that? Because I love her. I love spending time with her. It's the same way with the Lord, that this and God and his character is inexhaustible. Of course, Christians should want to know that. But here's a crucial distinction. There are many, many pastors and many professors, seminary professors, PhD level seminary professors and leaders who have committed apostasy with all of this biblical knowledge. There are people who have walked away from the faith, who have accumulated a load of biblical knowledge. So you would assume, man, they are mature. But the problem is, is that we have conflated absolute knowledge of God with maturity, and it doesn't work. Knowledge of God will be there. It is a crucial, crucial indicator of growing. But just because I know and understand a lot about God simply does not make me a mature person. There are many pastors who I know personally who have a wealth of biblical knowledge who have walked away from the faith and are no longer Christians. How can that be? It happens. It happens all of the time. Some of you may, may be very familiar with some celebrity pastors or well-known Christian leaders who have walked away from the faith or who have made significant moral failures. You know, if you think about the Pharisees when Jesus did his ministry, they had the entire Torah memorized. Do you understand what that means? It's the first five books of the Bible. That is a massive amount of knowledge. 
And yet Jesus indicts them and says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, maturity is not simply understanding more biblical knowledge. It is a love for Jesus. It is a love for Jesus, both in knowledge and orthopraxy. J.I. Packer says this, you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. And a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct. The reason is that the former will deal with God regarding the practical application of truth to his life, whereas the latter will not. Friends, we can master the Bible, but a better question is, is the Bible mastering you? Is the Bible mastering you? Do we sit underneath the Bible? Do we sit underneath God's church? Do we covenant together? Are we growing in our ability to forgive one another? Maturity is understood in terms of relationship, better said. And be, uh, maturity, better said, actually surrender, not exclusively knowledge. The Bible is so amazing, though. The Bible is so simple that my son Elijah can read it and understand it. Yet it is so vast and deep that an elephant can drown in it. It is so amazing. Because we desire the Bible not because it's a book that we like to enjoy and read, but because of who wrote it. When we come and submit to the Bible and come to grow and in in, in mature in our Christian life, we're not coming primarily to a book, but to meet with God. God who sent his final word, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath of God for us, that he died for us, saved us from ourselves, then rose, triumphed over sin and death, gave you that record of righteousness that it's received by faith, and he speaks today through his word, through his church, and through various means, through his, primarily through his word. And my question is, are we meeting with God in his word? That was one question I wanted to ask myself when I was studying this passage. Do I and do you have a time to meet with God? Is there a rhythm of grace in your life where you set aside 10, 20 minutes, however long, maybe it's an hour, but maybe you don't have an hour to study God's word, to meditate on it, to ask for help in the day, which is surely to be tested in your discernment of good and evil. Is there a person that you share burdens and sin with You could call them an accountability partner or whatever you would like to call them. But is there someone who knows you? Is there someone that you confess sin to, that things that you um, wouldn't share with anyone except maybe this person? Do you have a time to meet with God? Is there both an awareness of your sin and yet the beauty of the gospel and are those things growing? Are you growing in your knowledge and affection and application of the Bible? Do you have a time of prayer or... Maybe we ask ourselves, does the Bible bore us? Is it like a flight attendant's little spiel that she gets up on an airplane? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that if, 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 as Christians, if that is true, we have all the reason to come to God and ask for forgiveness and we will surely be met with forgiveness and a, and a desire to come to him again and he will change our hearts. But the question is, is are we coming? Are we coming? I wanna share a statistic about hydration in America that (laughs) conveys a little bit about being spiritually nourished. 
your body is 65% water. 75% of your muscles are made of water and your brain is 85% water. You can survive about one week, they say, without water. 99% of Americans have access to clean drinking water. The world has 90% access to clean water. I think there's 16 countries with less than 60% access. Sub-Saharan Africa has about 68% of the people have access to clean water. Yet studies shown by the CBS estimate that 75% of Americans don't drink the daily recommended amount of water, which is about 64 to 80 ounces, which is half your body weight, essentially, or can be. And what this means is that most people walk around in a constant state of chronic dehydration. The side effects are such as, are listed. They are kidney stones, cholesterol problems, constipation, liver damage, muscle damage, muscle pain, joint pain, weight gain, headaches, high blood pressure, skin disorders, asthma, allergies, and low energy. Now, 99%, let's take America, 99% of us have access to clean drinking water. But why are so many people chronically dehydrated? How does that make sense? Most fluids that we consume contribute to our dehydration, whether that be uh, Cokes or coffee or whatever they may be. But why are we so chronically dehydrated? The answer is very simple. We don't turn on the faucet and drink. We simply do not drink. The water is in the pipes. It's free to drink, but we do not drink. If the results of dehydration physically are kidney stones and such, what are the effects of spiritual malnourishment? Uh, A lack of drinking or spiritual hydration leads to dullness of hearing, leading to biblical immaturity, which will lead to devastating consequences. Spiritual apathy, purposeness, forgetting our identity in Christ, prone to anger, poor ethical decision-making, lack of spiritual parenting, little to no burden for those who are not Christians, overconsumption of such things as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, no desire for community, no confession of sin, a love of the world. Friends, we could go on and on and on about the effects of spiritual malnourishment. The question is that I'm posing to myself and to us, are we drinking deeply from the word. We can understand that verse 14, that our powers of discernment will not be trained by default because it says trained by constant practice. What does that mean? There are times, there are rhythms in our life we are, we are going to God in his word, in prayer with the church. These are constant practices. He even says constant practice. You know what's really interesting? That there's a myth that has been said. The myth says, rise to the occasion. I think, I think IU Athletics had a shirt that said rise to the occasion about several years ago. I had that shirt. It made me think of it. But I was listening to something. And you know, the Navy SEALs, which in my opinion, and it is my opinion, are pretty good leaders. They simply say, that is a myth. No one rises to any challenge. You simply fall to your level of training. No one rises to any challenge. You merely fall to your level of training. And so it begged the question when I read this, am I being trained by the Bible? Am I being molded and shaped by the Bible? Do I see through the Bible? Do I see around the Bible? Do I see over the Bible? Do I think that couldn't mean that? That surely I don't have time for that. Or do I say, God, your word is like a stream of water to a panting deer, which is me and I need it. 
And that's a question that we all have to ask. Am I being trained by the Bible? The goal, I say that, is not to convict myself. It's not to convict you. The goal is, to, is worship. The goal is worship, that when we come to God here in the, in the presence of the saints and, and here in the word, that God seeks to meet with us. The chief end of man is not for actually for us to correct my behavior. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. To enjoy him. That when I come to the word, I enjoy God. That's the beauty of the gospel. That your burdens and pain in life, God has something to say about them. That my parenting and the struggle, God has something to say about them. That my anxiety or your anxiety, God has something to say about those. Friends, the Bible has never been more accessible to us than today. Uh, We have more Bibles, study Bibles, iPad versions of the Bibles, podcasts about the Bibles, and apps that will literally read you the Bible but a statistic just showed that biblical illiteracy has never been higher. How can that be? Nobody's drinking. We simply are not drinking. Or we could say that milk has become the regular diet. And that doesn't mean that people who feed on milk aren't Christians. They can be and are. It simply means that Ruth's Chris is next door, but we cannot imagine anything from a bottle of milk. Rich Velotis, which is a pastor in Queens, he says this, I sometimes imagine a scenario in which someone is locked inside of a supermarket and dies of starvation. Can you imagine? You might say this is impossible, yet in our spiritual lives, this happens every day. Whether we know it or not, we are locked inside the supermarket of God's abundant life and love. It's all available to us. Even so, people are spiritually starving, but it doesn't have to be this way. The beauty of the gospel, friends, for you and I is that we are invited to a table. We're invited to drink. We're invited to feast, to grow. And as we feast and as we have communion with God, we mature. First it starts with milk and then it grows to solid food. And the beauty that God always invites us to draw near. In fact, in Hebrews later it says, or excuse me, in James it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the encouragement, that the more we draw near to God, the more he draws near to us, and the more we can eat and drink and grow. God never turns off the water. We simply need to drink. The table is always set as if it were Thanksgiving. We only need to eat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and we can eat solid food, God, that we have access to you daily, that we can enjoy you by your word, enjoy you in the communion of saints, God, that we can love you and obey you because you have given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be a people who long for solid food, who are able not to just be content and okay with the ABCs of our faith, but that fervently desire you. Holy Spirit, thank you for this church. Thank you for working in this church. And and God, we, we pray that we would be a people who long to obey you and feast on your word and in prayer and with each other and in community and on mission throughout the week. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.